how did the Gospels all end? How did they leave off? Jesus ascended. Ascension? Yeah. That's in Luke? Yeah. yeah. Luke. There's what happens at the end of Matthew? Matthew, Jesus said, I will be with you. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the Great Commission and the, great the promise yeah. Yeah. that he'll be with them. What about the end of Mark? End of Mark. Snake handling. Snake handling, yes. Yeah. A lot of teaching that you missed on snake handling, Jubin. Mark really went into that. Um, it's interesting, the end of the original manuscript, you know, it ends with like fear. The, w- the women see that the tomb's empty and they're fearful, and that's kind of where it ends. And these are the seven verses that were added? And then after that, yeah, are the yeah. verses that are added about snakes, kind of Mark's great commission to them. But, you know, if you look at the Ascension in Luke, Luke and Acts are kind of together, right? They were written um, both by Luke. But at the end, it talks about the disciples, the apostles, worshiping Jesus, returning to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And so if you imagine, you know, you finish the book of Luke, and imagine if Acts wasn't there, and you just flipped over the page to Romans. And, you know, Romans starts out, and it says... Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, you'd be super confused, right? You'd say, who is Paul? You know, I thought there was 12 disciples, maybe 11 now, and Paul was not one of them. Now, where did he come from? Why is he writing to the Romans? I thought they were in Jerusalem at the temple worshiping. How did this get all the way there? Um, God gave us Acts to help us understand how the gospel spread you know, not just from Jerusalem to Rome, but also through time. So you can think about in the 2,000 years after Jesus ascended, there are followers of Christ meeting not just in Jerusalem at the temple, but in every corner of the, of the earth. So even this morning while we were sleeping, people in Australia woke up, met together to worship the risen Christ. There were Christians across Asia, Right now, probably, wrapping up their gatherings as we speak. There's Christians meeting from the southern part of Africa, Cape Town, all the way to Cairo. There's Christians in you know, the south of South America and Chile, all the way to the you know, remote parts of Canada. And they're all gathering for the same purpose, to worship the risen Christ. And it's interesting to think about how we got to this point. You know, we had the church history core class in the spring that filled in a lot of those, those holes for us. Um, but Acts is a crucial first step in understanding how the gospel expanded out from Jerusalem. Uh, and in this book, in Acts, we're going to consider just that, how it spread from this outpost town of Jerusalem to the heart of the civilized world, which was Rome. And that will teach us why this kingdom has continued to expand through the nations since Luke wrote Acts 2,000 years ago. So the book of Acts, it, uh, it actually opens up right where Luke left off. Um, Jesus with the disciples, the ascension. Um, so if, you, if you, you, know, you look at Luke 24 at the end, Jesus says, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then if you, you, know, if you flip to the beginning of Acts, if you look at Acts 1, 6 through 8, they're together again. And, the, and they ask Jesus, you know, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, you know, starting in Jerusalem. So he's basically saying the same thing he just said. Acts is kind of beginning, um, like the beginning of a TV show might start, like previously on this episode. Luke's kind of doing the same thing. And with that introdu- introduction, Luke connects those two books together, Luke and Acts, and he also provides sort of an outline for the rest of the book that before the kingdom of Christ culminates, 
the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, Before we think about the outline, let's think a little bit about the background of the book. So the author, as Mark mentioned last week about the book of Luke, is that Luke is the author. What do we know about Luke? I'll ask you guys, what, what do we know about Luke, who he was? Just a doctor. Doctor? How do you know that? <laughs> Somebody told me once. I had to look it up. Um, does anybody know where we can learn that Luke is a doctor or was a doctor? I think it's written in the physician like somewhere. Yeah. Luke the physician. Yes, you're right. It's at the, at the end of Colossians, Colossians 4.14. And uh, so he's a physician. Apparently he's a historian as well. He writes these historical accounts as a, really a two-volume set covering a span of 60 years. So about 30 years in Luke, about 30 years in Acts. And in our Bibles, the, the Gospel of John is placed in between them. Um, why do you guys think that is? In order to keep the synoptic Gospels together? Yeah, I think that's right. So they wanted to kind of separate John from the other three. They put it at the end. But it's a little unfortunate because it would be nice if Luke and Acts were right next to each other. Uh, They were likely written together. Um, The date, the book of Acts was likely written not long after um, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is probably the early 60s AD. Uh, One major clue, actually, to this early date is the way that Acts ends because it ends with Paul in prison, living two whole years at his own expense, Um, but it doesn't end with Paul's death. So you'd think if Luke or whoever wrote this book, you know, was writing um, later on in history, he would include, you know, the death of Paul, but he doesn't. So it seems like maybe that's around the time. So while, while Luke is writing the, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Paul is writing letters from Rome to churches um, in Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. Those are written probably about the same time. Uh, genre. How would you guys describe the genre of Acts? History. History. Narrative. 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 History. Speeches. Yeah. Yeah, like most books, it's a little more complex than just saying it's one exact type of genre. Discourse. There's a few text types, yeah. Discourse. Discourse along with the narrative. Could it also be a letter to Theophilus? It's written to Theophilus, yeah. It's addressed to somebody at the beginning of the book. Um, I think it's, it's good not to consider it strictly a history as we think about it. Um, it's not exactly written to be a precise chronology of events. Um, it's written with a purpose. So Luke was a careful researcher, as we saw in, in the Gospel of Luke. And we have no reason to doubt the historical accounts that he writes down. But the information in Acts was always meant to lead to transformation. It was written for a purpose. Every event and character was included for you know, specific reasons. And I think one way we can see this is through the discourses and the speeches that are included in Acts. If you were writing a, hist- a history on your own to cover 30 years you know, with how many pages the book of Acts is, how many speeches would you include you know, written in, in their length? Um, You might include the main ideas if you're just trying to stick to the history. But Luke includes 10 very large speeches. So three from Peter, one from Stephen, six from Paul. And then if you were actually to count the smaller speeches as well as there's a a couple of letters in the book that are recorded, that's about half of the entire book are discourse like that. So Luke is dedicated not just to recording the Acts, of the messengers, he's focused on relaying the message itself to the readers, the message that they're proclaiming. And who were the readers? Who's the audience? Theophilus. Theophilus. Do you guys remember what Mark taught us about Theophilus last week? Who was Theophilus? Yeah, his name means lover of God. So, it's it, it. I think it was likely a real person who sponsored. Um, Luke to write these long books, but it's possible that it was just written to um, people who loved God. 
And obviously, the, the, um, it wasn't intended to be written for this one man only. You know, Theophilus paid for it to be written. The purpose was for Christians all over to read it. And that's what happened. The book of Acts was circulated throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, targeting Jewish Christians and Gentiles. Um, moving on to purpose, why did Luke write? Uh, I think there's a few purposes that I think are convincing. Uh, maybe Luke wrote to narrate the outworkings of the kingdom's arrival in the early church, to convince recently converted Gentiles that they are genuinely part of the people of God, so they're part of true Israel, maybe to preserve the gospel message of the early messengers, the apostles. I think those are all part of why Luke wrote. But above these things, we should understand that this book was written to build up Christians, to build up the faith of the church. And as we consider Acts today, I hope that you are encouraged and built up as you think about God's sovereign care for you by expanding his kingdom from Jesus to his disciples all the way to us today. Um, If we think about the context, the structure, the book of Acts is 28 chapters. There's a few ways to break it down. Um, Some people break it into two parts. There's... Uh, Peter and Paul. So you could break it into two. The first 12 chapters are sort of focusing on Peter as a main character. The second half is focusing on Paul. That's helpful to know generally, but it's not you know, a great way to break up the whole book. Peter isn't even mentioned in chapter 7. He makes only slight appearances in some of those other chapters. And it's not really about the apostles or the messengers anyway. It's about God spreading the gospel through the world. You could also look at the geography. There's a lot of mentions of geography throughout the book. Even as we saw in Acts 1-8, geography there, we see it spreading to Samaria, different parts of Palestine, Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Jerusalem, Rome. Um, I think that's a better way to break it up. Um, But yeah, I think the best way is to focus on Acts 1-8. So if if you are not there already, we, we should read that. I can't remember if I read it already. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it's really the theme of the whole book, Acts 1.8. And I think we can start by taking a look at the book in those three chunks. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of earth. And of course these aren't clear breaks in Acts. It's, it's really hard to give a definite structure of a book without fault. Um, and really the lines between these three are, are a little fuzzy. You know, one kind of starts mm. where the other ends. Uh, but it's still helpful to kind of think about it in these three parts. Mm. One other thing I included to sort of help separate us in the outline are summary statements. So throughout the book of Acts, there's these, a lot of summaries about how the gospel was growing, the number of believers was increasing and multiplying, Um, and some of them kind of come after significant moments or like when there's a a kind of a shift in what's happening. Um, Some things that are true of those summary statements, so they show geographical spread, especially these first two I've listed in verse 6, 7, and 9, 31, they show that the way that the church is growing is through the word and that they show uh, the growth of the gospel. Like I said, that it's increasing, multiplying, flourishing. Okay, that's, that's the pre-flight explanation. But before we take off on the rest of the overview, do you guys have any questions on anything we've talked about so far? Any questions? Um, how do we know Luke wrote uh, Good question. Um, did you see his name at the beginning? No, we didn't. We didn't see his name. Um, some people question it. I think uh, I can't remember. How do we know? Um, one way that we know is there's these parts in Acts that use the, the word "we." 
So it seems to have been a, a companion of Paul. And then uh, I think in early church history, I think in the second century, people started attributing it to Luke. Um, but in the book itself, it doesn't say, I, Luke, am writing this. As far as I know. It's saying about Luke chapter 1, um, he writes to Theophilus. Yeah. So then it makes sense. This book, Acts starts with, in the first book, Theophilus, referring back to Luke. It's, I mean, that's kind of common sense. Yeah. Yeah, so if we know that Luke's written by Luke, Acts is written by Luke. Cool. What'd you say um, with Peter, the structure with Peter and Paul? Where'd you say Peter ends? Yeah, I think it's um, 1 through 12, 12, 13 through 28. And, and this is structure? How do you like break it down like, with the chapters? Uh, if you open up in the middle, this will be sort of the outline of what we're about to go through. So the church, you can even add those answers right now. The church is born in Jerusalem. The church extends to Judea and Samaria. And the church expands to the ends of the earth. So those are the verses. Um, I'm realizing now <laughs> the church is born should end in 6 to 7. That's a mistake. Got it said first. there was overlap. There is overlap. Um, Michael, with your point, did you go back to Luke for... <clears throat> why do we say Acts is also written by Luke? Why do we say Luke is written by Luke? Because it also doesn't start with I Luke. Good question. I don't remember from last week what Mark said. What would you say? Uh, I would need to check on it. Um, my guess is like because it's a book that's been named by him, it's one that we have pretty good tradition. Like the early church accepted it as being by Luke, but. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right. I'll, uh, maybe I'll look at it after the class and we can, we can talk about it together. It's a good question. Uh, all right, well, let's get moving through the outline, get the plane off the ground. Um, the first blank is the acts of the... Who is it? The acts of the... Holy Spirit. Apostles, church. People usually say Acts of the Apostles. My Bible even says the Acts of the Apostles here. I think it's better to say the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church. Because the Spirit is the power of the church's witness. We'll talk a little more about the Spirit later. Um, And the power they receive from the Spirit in order to be witnesses starts in Jerusalem. The church is born in Jerusalem. The first chapter of the book is sort of a prologue. Prologue. Maybe I won't write all these because you got some of them there. Um, so you just say prologue or preparation. You have this command from Jesus to remain and wait for the Spirit in verse 4. The disciples are eager to know when the kingdom is going to come. And then Jesus answers them sort of indirectly in Acts 1-8 how it's going to come. And then Jesus ascends into heaven while the disciples descend the Mount of Olives. And what's interesting um, is that the ascension is only recorded in these two books written by Luke, in Luke and in Acts. We have it in Mark in the extra parts that are not part of, most likely part of the original manuscripts. But Luke seems it as, or sees it as important to include. And even in the messages proclaimed later by the apostles and disciples, they mention the ascension. It is also like he is connecting to his gospel also while he was explaining again about ascension of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So he's trying to connect. Yeah. In, in, in the context of his reading, writing and what happened next. Yeah. So he's like, if, you know, maybe I don't know how much time, you know, was, was between when somebody would have read Luke and, and read Acts. It's like, in case you forgot, this is Jesus ascended. He's in heaven now at the right hand of God. Um, so next, the next part of Acts 1, the, the disciples, the apostles feel compelled to preserve the, um, the symbolism of their number, that there's 12 of them. This, you know, co- correlates to the 12 tribes of Israel. 
They select Matthias to replace Judas. And with those, you know, symbolic 12 tribes of Israel united again, reunited, Acts 2 starts this narration of thousands of Jews from other countries coming to celebrate the Jewish feast of Passover. Or sorry, that's not right. What is it? It's Pentecost. I was confused. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks. Does anyone know how many days have passed between Passover and Pentecost? 40, 50 days. 49, I think. 49, 50. Why do you, you just know that? Because the Sabbath, I calculated that week because he's mentioned, I yeah, I, I think I think it's close to that. It's basically fifty. Even this pent penta means yeah, it is like five. Yeah. So it's fifty days. 50. Maybe forty nine. If, if you don't count a Sunday, or you do count. Yeah. So it was a Jewish festival. It's not. You know, they, it was Jews coming into the city of Jerusalem from the corners of the earth to celebrate, and. The Spirit comes upon the apostles and then comes upon these different Jews that are gathered there. And the same thing happens um, to both of them. They start speaking in tongues. And these tongues appear to be known languages from different parts of the world. Acts 2 says, How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And this seems to be a reversal of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 10 and 11, if you guys know that story. There in Tower of Babel, people were disobeying God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and they're building this tower uh, for their own name. And so God confuses their language. But then here in, at Pentecost in Acts 2, um, in order for the gospel message to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, reach the nations, God gives this gift of tongues so that these representatives from scattered nations can understand, they can find harmony in the gospel together. They can all, uh, as one, by the power of the Spirit, hear the gospel. So it's this undoing of, of what God had done in Tower of Babel. After this, Peter gets up, preaches a sermon. He interprets all these things, the coming of the Spirit, in light of Old Testament uh, passages. So Joel, Psalm 16. Um, and so 3,000 people are cut to the heart, it says. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. And so the first church is formed as they receive the initiating sign of membership in their church, baptism. And the, the imagery here paints these new believers as new temples of the Spirit. So rather than Jerusalem, the temple being the place where God's Spirit dwells, now each of these people are where God's Spirit dwells. And then at the end of chapter 2, we get the sweet picture of fellowship, harmony, and unity in the believer's and, yeah, here, I'll, I'll just reiterate, there's a lot of places in Acts we see descriptions, descriptions about the church, and it's important to keep in mind that Acts wasn't meant to be reverse-engineered so that we could get a how-to guide for churches today. It's, um, Luke's telling a history, he's teaching us something, but he's not giving us a how-to guide. So these, these descriptions are not, not meant to be commands for us. You know, we don't have a command to sort of form socialist colonies and sell everything and share everything. But we can learn principles from what's happening here and from other places. So here at the end of Acts 2, we can learn about generosity, love, having meals together, and more. Uh, moving on. So preparation, Pentecost, another P, proclamation. So this is the next uh, basically two, two and a half chapters, three chapters. 3, 4, 5, and into 6. Uh, the new Christians, the 3,000 Christians there in Jerusalem and, and growing. It says the Lord is adding to their number day by day. Um, I mentioned that they were basically these mobile temples, and the time was coming where they're going to clash with the leaders of the old temple. So Luke recounts two stories of healing done by the apostles, paired with opposition from temple leaders, and that provided opportunities for sermons about Jesus' resurrection. So that's 
3.11 through 4.31. Um, Peter speaks in Solomon's portico. And then again in chapter 5, um, the apostles are arrested again and, and kind of have a little speech. And then we have the summary statement. In chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Praise God. Next, um, well, that wraps up the first section. Next, we move on to Jerusalem, or sorry, Judea and Samaria, from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And from chapter 6 onward, the book starts to move more quickly. So if, if we're in an airplane, it's kind of like we took a vertical takeoff above Jerusalem, and now we're going to move out. And it's ignited, the moving out is ignited by Stephen's speech. So Stephen is selected to serve. At the beginning of chapter 6, he's one of um, a number of people selected to serve uh, widows, to, to serve tables. But Stephen's not simply this servant, you know, who doesn't uh, know how to teach. He gives this huge biblical theology in chapter 7, Stephen's speech, about why the kingdom was never meant to be confined to an ethnic people group, to, to a particular ethnic people group, the Jews. And so what's the response? How do they respond to Stephen's speech? They seem to be kind of nodding along up until he calls them stiff-necked people in verse 51. And then it doesn't go super well after that. They are very angry. They stone him. They kill him. Um, yet after Jesus or Stephen is um, killed, we see the gospel spread through Judea and Samaria. So Acts 8, 1 uh, there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It's important to know. Um, one quick side note again on Stephen not being an apostle. I think that can be a good encouragement for us if we don't have positions of leadership. Uh, one of us in the room is a pastor, but the rest of us are not. And it's encouraging for us that we... We can be empowered by the Spirit to preach the gospel to, to others. Um, we can be a powerful witness used by God. So, right. all of these next four are names. So we've got Stephen's death. Next, we've got Philip's witness. Philip's witness. Philip is another non-apostle. He proclaims Christ in Samaria and explains the gospel really to a few outcasts. So first is Simon the magician, uh, and then a court official to the queen of Ethiopia. That's all in chapter 8. A lot we can say about those things, but we'll keep moving for time. Next is Paul's new life. Paul's new life. So in chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, the very man who approved of Stephen's killing, literally sees the risen Christ in a blinding light, and he's converted on his way to Damascus. And I, it's kind of interesting to think about it as a contrast. This spiritually dead uh, persecutor, murderer of Stephen, now has new life to live as a missionary to the ends of the earth. It's Paul's new life. Next, um, we have lots about Peter, Peter's witness. So the first half of Acts, like we said, in which Peter could be said to be the central character, um, goes through 12, 24. Um, and one of the most important things we see here is this dramatic account of the gospel being brought to a Roman centurion named Cornelius in chapter 10. So think about how monumental this must have been for Peter to be called to bring the gospel to a Gentile. We read that Peter was shocked. He was shocked by God's insistence to not consider unclean what God has called clean. So the Lord's challenging the heart of what Peter believed as a Jew. Uh, you could read 10 verses uh, 27 to 29 to think about that. Uh, we read that immediately after hearing the gospel and believing, Cornelius and those in his household experienced the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the disciples had at Pentecost. Um, and what, what must Peter have been what must Peter have been thinking uh, when, when this happened? Uh, I think maybe the words of Christ in Luke 13 might have been ringing in his ears. Uh, 
Jesus said in Luke 13, What's the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So the kingdom's growing. And here's Peter, the one who had kind of persistently confused Christ's kingdom and what that meant on earth uh, with, with these false dreams about a Messiah. But now he's an instrument of the kingdom coming. Uh, it wasn't just a, a new experience for Peter. We see that as the gospel expanded to the Gentiles, it forced the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem to begin grappling with some basic questions about the nature of the gospel and its expansion to the Gentiles. So Luke recounts in in chapter 11, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the household of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter recounts this entire event. Um, It's a little bit uh, redundant to read, it feels like. But after hearing this, after all they say, Luke tells us that when they heard these things, they fell silent. This is verse 18 of chapter 11. And they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Maybe as you hear these things about Cornelius and Peter, um, I wonder if you can identify with Cornelius, who is a gracious recipient of God's grace, even though he was not a Jew. None of us here are Jews, to my knowledge. But in God's providence, he's found it fit to expand the kingdom even to Gentiles, to non-Jews like us. And maybe you can identify with Peter, who at first didn't understand these different aspects of God's plan. And I think an application for us today, thinking about Cornelius, is that we shouldn't consider anyone outside of God's reach for the gospel. There's no people group that's unclean or untouchable. If you're tempted to see evangelism primarily in terms of sharing the gospel with people relatively similar to you, and then this account of Peter sharing with Cornelius uh, is for you. Consider that it would have been men similar to Cornelius who oversaw and carried out the execution of Jesus. So not only was this an unclean man, this was a man just like the ones who had killed Peter's um, Messiah. So Peter went and shared, not because it was easy or convenient, but because of God's command to him to go share. Then we get another summary statement in verse 24 of chapter 12. The word of God increased and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul return um, when they complete their service. And then we're going to move on to the third and final part of the book. In some ways, so you can divide it in three. These first two kind of fit in the Peter section and the rest fits in the Paul section. Um, But we see the ends of the earth now. The church expands to the ends of the earth. And now it's Paul. He's going to be the vehicle God's using. We see that it expands first to Asia Asia Minor, which is modern day. Does anybody know where that is? Turkey. Turkey, yeah. Modern day Turkey. Um, I think it's technically like southwest Turkey. And he's gone to these cities like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, And him and Barnabas, as they go to these towns and cities, they kind of establish a pattern of what they do when they enter each city. So if you read it, you kind of like can predict what they're going to do next. They first go to the synagogue to teach where the Jews gather. Then they encounter some sort of general Jewish rejection to the gospel. And then that results in Paul preaching to the Gentiles outside of the synagogue And then finally, persecution from the Jews forces them to leave. And they move on to the next place. So after retracing their travels back to Antioch and Syria, Paul and Barnabas were summoned back to Jerusalem to defend and discuss their Gentile outreach. So this is an important part, uh, commonly called the Jerusalem Council. It's in Acts 15. Can anyone like briefly explain what, what was happening at the Jerusalem Council? What were they deciding? Yeah. 
David, do you know? About Holy Spirit? Maybe. Is it about how Gentiles could be Christians as well? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, specifically, it was like, do not necessarily can Gentiles become Christians, but do they have to become Jews first in order to become Christians? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to observe other aspects of the Jewish law in order to be Christians? Um, Peter rightly defends the work of Barnabas and Paul. He says in Acts 15, 11, um, where is this? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So in the same way, it's by grace. The council agrees. They draft a letter to Gentile believers asking them merely to encourage their fellow Jewish Christians by living upright lives and avoiding common stumbling, stumbling blocks like things sacrificed to idols and stuff. Then there's another summary statement in 16.5. Where is this? The churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And then we move on to Europe. So that's the next place. Asia to Europe, or you could say Greece and other places in Europe. So the rest of Acts 16, 6 through 19, 20 is really about the continued expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world. Paul's first trip went into modern-day Turkey. Second trip takes him to Greece. Paul and Silas travel. First, uh, they go to Macedonia. After sharing the gospel with Lydia and Philippi in chapter 16, they're arrested. They're thrown in prison. They're rescued in a similar way to Peter as he was rescued earlier in the book. But this time, it's by an earthquake and not by an angel. And they move on to Thessalonica and then Berea before arriving in Athens. In Athens, Paul has this famous speech at the Areopagus, and he quotes, he quotes Greek philosophers and poets in order to gain a hearing, and then he proclaims the gospel to them. So here, Paul is embodying what he would teach later, that he became all things to all men, not by altering the message of Jesus Christ, but by focusing it to the background and context of his audience. So we, we, should do, we should pray for faithfulness to do the same thing in our lives today with our children, with our Hindu neighbor, with our Muslim coworker, with our aunts or uncles who maybe are just nominal Christians. We should take the, the true one gospel and um, become all things to all people, help them to understand the message by bringing it to where they live. In chapter 18, Paul moves on to Corinth, where he spends time working with Priscilla and Aquila. Luke tells us that they were tent makers. Um, While in Corinth, the Lord speaks to Paul, saying, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And in a time where it might not have been clear exactly how well the progress was going on uh, as the kingdom was expanding. This must have been really encouraging for Paul to hear. And I think that that verse, the truth from that verse can encourage us today as we think about God having people chosen um, all over the world today as well. God has chosen who will come to him. And we we don't bear the responsibility for how quickly God's kingdom expands, for how quickly the church grows. God does. Our job is to proclaim the message of the gospel and trust that God has people and that he will give the growth. Moving on, chapter 19, Paul moves into Ephesus. It's one of the largest cities that Paul evangelizes. Ephesus was known for its magical practices. It's got the cult of Artemis there. And so if in Athens, Paul is speaking to philosophers and confronting uh, these philosophies and showing that Christianity is better. In Ephesus, he proves that the forces of darkness and magic cannot overpower the name of Jesus. So he's confronting philosophy. He's confronting darkness, magic, these things that uh, people believed in in the ancient world and today. Then at the end of uh, 19, not quite the end, I guess, halfway through, we get another summary statement in verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then the gospel moves on 
really to Rome. And I say that Paul's still uh, in Ephesus at this point. But we get that summary statement. And then in verse 21, Paul resolves in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem in order to go to Rome. And what happens here is there's this, um, there's this riot that happens in Ephesus. These silversmith workers who make idols realize that their business is in trouble because Paul's preaching the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, but in God's providence, Paul is not harmed. And um, in fact, when Paul returns to Ephesus, sometime later, he's able to encourage the elders there, the Ephesian elders. This is, uh, it's probably one of the sweetest, most tender parts of the book of Acts, the end of Acts 20, when Paul speaks to the Ephesians, Ephesian elders. Um, Acts 20, 24, I think is a great life verse, not accounting your life of any value or as precious to yourself. Uh, but I want to point our attention to verse 28 here in chapter 20, to the weighty job that the elders have been given. So verse 28 says, Paul carefully, or sorry, <laughs> pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So riots and opposition may come, but the elders have this weighty responsibility to care and watch over the flock. So I think an application for us, we should think about our own elders and our church and pray for them here at Covenant Hope that they would lead us to rely on Christ in the midst of hardships. Moving on, see if we can speed up just a little bit. Paul is on his second trip uh, into Asia Minor. He returns to Jerusalem. Trouble awaits him. Um, Jews stir up a crowd against Paul and he's arrested. He first appears to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And eventually, he ends up in Rome. A couple things, he appeals to his Roman citizen, citizenship a couple times, uh, not necessarily to escape punishment, but in order to help him to get to Rome and to continue to proclaim the gospel. He's, and he's using, um, really it's a gift, his Roman citizenship is a gift from God that he's using to help proclaim the gospel. And I think that's, that's an important application for us to think about the ways that God's gifted us, maybe in our experiences, Maybe things that were beyond our control, like where we were born, um, what language we speak. But we can use these things in order to proclaim the gospel, to bring it to different places. We mentioned earlier that God is the one in control of bringing people to himself. In order, He's in control of changing hearts. But that doesn't mean that we sit back and we wait for that to happen. We should use our gifts in order to share the gospel. It's good to have like a godly ambition to do that. So after a long journey that includes a shipwreck and other things, um, he makes his way all the way to Rome. The, the words at the end of Acts 28 are really encouraging. Paul says, therefore, this is 28, 28. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So that was quick. We went all the way from Jerusalem, Jesus there, all the way to Paul in Rome, saying the Gospels went out to the Gentiles. Any questions? Um, you probably have questions about particular verses in Acts, but any particular questions over what I've said or the outline? Uh, mm -hmm. The whole outline, like, since chapter 1. Yeah. Were you... Say Peter's witness also started at chapter one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of falls. Like I said, there's no faultless way to break up the book. Peter's witness is kind of here, one through 12. But we see sort of his particular ministry of performing healing and preaching and different things like that um, in that section, Peter's witness. It's a good question. Yeah, I noticed in this, like, in outline, the chapter 1, verse 8, mainly, I think it took, and uh, how Jesus said that uh, 
the Holy Spirit come and you will witness. Mm. So yeah, you are ge geographically you are showing that the word how gospel is witnessing in different places. Yeah. At the end of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. But, That's right. Uh, so I feel like like work, how they are, how the gospel is um, working, like how they are preaching, like more ministry work. Your question is how are they preaching the gospel in Acts? Yeah, because Luke is descri uh, this giving description of the ministry, how they are, how the gospel they are preaching, to whom they are preaching, hmm. how the gospel is working in their lives. Yeah. So in, I'm thinking about that. That that way could be outlined, like ministry, ministry through the ministry of the Peter, Paul, Barnabas. Ah, uh, like if you you're saying you could make an outline based on characters. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Like, uh, yeah. So like you have these ones here, but you could make a yeah. Break it into who's teaching and the ministry of these different people. Maybe I think it's helpful to sort of see those different lenses. I do think these are the best breaks of the book. Mm. It's kind of a thesis at the beginning. Yeah. But it's good to kind of have different dimensions to think about that. And then even within you know, a break like this, this is the first seven, six, six chapters of the book, to kind of be able to break it into smaller chunks. And obviously we could even you know, break it into even more things. Because I feel like, like the life of the church, because... In the Acts, the church is stopped. Um, they are gathering and these all things. Mm. How the church expand and how churches be planted. So I thought that if we go through ministry, uh, uh, through the ministry lens, uh, making outline, so like it will be more clear to mm. think about the church and all that things. Maybe you could try it and let me know. Um, Carson, one question. Um, Hit me. You mentioned how Acts is not like a how-to guide. I hear a lot of people say things like, you know, we need to return to the church in Acts. We need to do the things they did. What would be the reasons you'd say um, it's different then than it is now? Yeah, that's a good question. Same spirit. Same spirit. Same, uh, the Acts, the Great, Great Commission. Commission. Yeah. I think, yeah, like we mentioned, it's the intent of the author. We have letters that are written more of like addressing questions and giving commands and answers. This is closer to a history. It's not saying this is how to do it. There's things we can learn. But there's other things that make it different. Um, I think a huge one is that like these are apostles, um, people who saw the risen Christ, um, who were people who were with the apostles, and they're given special authority. And um, even as the gospel, you know, this is like the gospel is breaking into the Gentile world for the first time. And so things are happening, I think, in Acts that weren't meant to ever happen again. Like we shouldn't have a Jerusalem council again to decide if people need to do this in order to be, you know, like these were definitive for the church. Um, the, the, the apostles assembling, like in Jerusalem and things like that. So I, I think that's a big one. Um, it is the same spirit. It is the same Great Commission. So there are lots that we can learn. But I think we just need to take it with a grain of salt. Think this is first a description of what's happened in the early church. Um, rather than how can we you know, make this exact same thing happen in our church today. Would you add anything to that or anything else that you can think of? Yeah, I think the apostles are helpful. Salvation history, yes. being time, coming of the Spirit, yeah. birth of the church. Yep. So is that everything in Scripture is just description? And so... <laughs> no, no, no. So how do we know when it's description and maybe the other thing would be proscription, like prescriptive what we are supposed to do? Yeah. Interns? How do we know that New Testament polity is prescriptive or descriptive? You guys read a whole article on that. Any thoughts? I thought like 
something more like what is perspective we can take and to apply in our churches. But something is we cannot take uh, because it's depend on their context and their region. So, so how do we know what we can and can't take? You're saying maybe it's context. Yeah. So like they are selling their land mm. and uh, giving to the church, right? And sharing everything. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, can our church sell all these things as they are doing? Can we? It depends on context. We could. So that's why I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah. I think in general, like, it's good to think about what is the purpose of the author. So this is a narrative account. It's a history versus a letter that's written in order to instruct. Um, it's good to think about the covenants, what covenant we're under. So generally in Scripture, if you're in the Old Testament seeing a command, you should think about it through the lens of the covenant it's under and then reflect on it through Christ and the new covenant. So we should see commands different today. Uh, when we read different parts of the Bible. One thing that helps is patterns. Sometimes there's patterns that you see. So like there's a pattern in Acts where they gather on the first day of the week, resurrection day. So they don't gather on the Sabbath anymore, which was Saturday, they gather on Sunday. That's not, I don't think, a command, but it seems like a pattern that might be good to follow. And I think there's things like that in Acts. Can you think of any... Well, I think maybe the first thing, which you guys probably already talked about this in the internship discussions, right? But it's just noticing whether something is a prescription or a description. So that would be the first thing is like, is it simply describing what took place? Mm. Or is it actually prescribing this is how things should be done? Mm. So like, that's like one of the big differences. Like if it's like a command, that's a prescription. Mm. Commands and scriptures are one that generally we should accept and receive as ones that we should apply to our churches and our lives. When it's simply describing what took place, then we need to jump into what you're talking about, Carson, right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, is this something that's a, a good pattern that should be applied as well, even if it's just a description? Or mm -hmm. is it something that was simply just contextual and only for that time and place? Yeah. But that's the first thing, right, is understanding, is it simply a description or is it a prescription? Yeah. And that's the clear one. Then the hard one is, of the descriptions, are they ones that we should apply to us, or are they just examples of that period? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of, the, some of the ones when we're looking at like a history like this, and we see descriptions and we're not sure, we then see a command that confirms you know, our suspicion mm -hmm. later. So we see a pattern, and then we see this command later that, that confirms it. Then we know. I have one question on the summary statement. Yeah seems to have a theme, the word of God increased or the number increased. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it just means the same or, or is it saying that the copies of word of God increased as the, as more people came to know the... Yeah, I don't think it's about the copies of the word of God yet. Because um, they weren't really writing things down at the time that these were happening. So like, does anybody remember what the first... Like, I think maybe people say Mark, or some of the letters, I guess, were the first New Testament things written. They were written by Paul. I think maybe Galatians is the first Galatians. one. Yeah. yeah. 44, and I, 44? 44 AD or 45 AD? Yeah, I think that's right. We had that timeline that Michael sent to our group. That's helpful. But when, like, Pentecost was happening, that was probably 30 or 33. Mm. People weren't really writing down in order to preserve those things yet. Or if they were, they were lost. But I don't think they were making copies and multiplying them. I think that it was about the message of the gospel was multiplying. And it's not even the art culture, like people learning and like. Maybe a little closer to that, but yeah, it's about I think people responding to the gospel. Yeah. Great. Well, we are running out of time. We'll take five more minutes to uh, think about the melodic lines and themes. So melodic line, you guys might or might not know what that is. If you think about a song, the melody is this combination of pitch and rhythm that makes a song recognizable. So like it's, it's what you would hum along to or sing along to in a song. And what makes a melodic line for a book of the Bible, it, 
It means that it's the identifiable main idea that, that flows through the book from beginning to end. So everything sort of attaches to it somehow. And you can see it traced from the beginning to end. And it's something that I think is helpful for all of us to think about. Like, what's the main idea of the book of Acts? What's, what's the melodic line? And it's something that we can keep sharpening as we, you know, start, or, or we keep reading it for the rest of our lives. We can get a better idea, a sharper understanding of the melodic line. Here's my attempt. Uh, no hindrance can overcome the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom for the Spirit empowers the church to proclaim the gospel. There's a few specific things that I have there, some themes. I'll mention a few. Um, I tried to make it Trinitarian, so Father, Son, Spirit. The Spirit is a really big theme in the book of Acts. The Spirit comes to the people um, at Pentecost as uh, the apostles are waiting for it. The apostles plus, I think there's 120 in the upper room with them. And there's lots of other times that the Spirit's mentioned. Um, What do I want to say here? Yeah, the Holy Spirit in the book seems to act in ways that are extraordinarily supernatural in order to validate the message of the gospel when it first comes to new places. So the Holy Spirit is acting in those ways through tongues and miracles. So these remarkable works of the Spirit should be best understood as extensions of Pentecost and not really the normative experience of believers today. At the same time, Luke labors to explain you know, that the Spirit has come. He, he brings it up again and again um, that Jesus delivered his promise to send the Spirit to followers of Christ. Um, not just to the early church, but to all who believe in him. And so it's good not to kind of you know, get crazy excited about the Spirit or to you know, diminish the Spirit too much. Um, but it's a good question for us to ponder are we aware and thankful for the Holy Spirit today? It's dangerous to ignore him altogether. And we should rejoice that even today, God's Spirit is opening our minds to the word. He's convicting us of sin. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. He's assuring us of God's grace. He's guiding us by his presence. Um, the Spirit provides the power that Christ promised before his ascension. So Spirit's important. The gospel is important. The gospel of Jesus Christ I think I, I mentioned before, just the, the message seems to be really important to Luke to record. He records all these speeches. Um, and even the way that all these people became Christians, you can think about Saul, how he was converted. It wasn't when he saw the light. It's when he went to Ananias, and Ananias explains the gospel to him, and he repents and believes. Or Cornelius. Cornelius uh, is spoken to by an angel, but the angel doesn't share the gospel with him. The angel says, go to Go to Peter, and Peter explains. And that's when Cornelius repents and believes. And it's the same thing today, that God uses means. He uses people to share the gospel. Um, he uses people today to talk about our need for a Savior, that we're lost in sin and we deserve God's wrath, but in God's grace and mercy, Christ has come to give us forgiveness. And we need that message today. That's how people become Christians, just like they did then. Um, let me think. The sovereignty of God is really important, the Father's plan. Uh, we mentioned a little bit just about um, how God is the one that, that gives growth. He promises that there's people in these cities for Paul as he's preaching. Um, And we see God's hand at work throughout the whole book. Let me, um, let me just close. If you flip to the very end of the book of Acts, uh, chapter 28, the very end. <clears throat> he, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. When you read through this book, or even just hearing about it this morning, do you happen to notice any hindrances to the gospel? I certainly did. There's angry Jews, pagan riots, Roman imprisonments, shipwrecks. 
those all seem like hindrances to me. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's as if the gospel was proclaimed without hindrance because God was at work. Let's trust in God's sovereignty and take heart and take action ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.